Welcome to the Clueless at the Work podcast, where we talk through a framework for being successful in your job. My name is Anthony Garone, and I'll be hosting this show with some friends who are experts in helping people grow. The content is based on my book, Clueless at the Work, Advice from a Corporate Tyrant, which is published by Stairway Press. You can find out more at cluelessatthework.com. Welcome back to the Clueless at the Work podcast. And I'm lucky to have in the studio with me today, Alex Kramer, who is a leader at a software company here in Arizona called TAG. Alex, thank you so much for joining today. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate um, you making the drive out here. I know it wasn't a short one. No. <laughs> so yeah, thank you. Um, for the listeners, why don't you give yourself uh, or give them an introduction about you and what you do? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I work at a company called TAG and I'm a um, software developer slash project manager slash problem solver at our, at our, at our company. Um, been working there for about 10 years now um, and I've had a lot of interesting experiences as far as being humbled by what I don't know and being humbled sometimes by what I do know when I don't realize, don't, don't think I know that type of mm-hmm. stuff, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a very interesting kind of run with the business and uh, it's uh, we're, we're always changing, always kind of moving and, and new things are always happening and we're always having to adapt to those things. So it makes me adapt as a person and as a manager and as a leader of a com- uh, part of the company also. Can you tell us a little bit about what your company does? Yeah, absolutely. So we help um, construction companies with uh, their prevailing wage problems. So when a company has, when a company does like work for the government, there's a lot more rules that they have to follow. So when people are doing roads, uh, if you're driving the, you know, the backhoe in the road, you got to pay one, the, the employee, let's say $33 an hour. And if they're digging a ditch, you got to pay them $20 an hour. So from a compliance perspective, a lot of times customers are just utilizing this, uh, this, you know, let's use a spreadsheet or let's let the employee fill out a piece of paper and then send it into us and we'll pray that everything's correct when it's usually not. Um, so we, uh, help automate a lot of that through time attendance, payroll, um, benefits, administration, and some of those other areas that just simplify their life and make it a lot easier for them. So mm-hmm. it's generally complex. Uh, generally, you have to understand a lot of the rules. I, I like to think I'm a software developer who has a slight understanding of how like the Department of Labor works, and that's sometimes scary uh, to, to have that, that knowledge and, and have to, you know, be some kind of a traffic cop for requests on those kinds of things too. So, mm-hmm. um, but. so one thing, uh, that I wanted you to, or the main reason I wanted you on here is, um, you're a reader, you read a lot and you have always been interested in a variety of topics. And I've always found that interesting about you. I don't remember how we met. I think it was something through melt media, my last job. Um, but what I remember about meeting you is being impressed with how much you read and how wide your, your book collection is. <laughs> so, um, you read my book and, and I was curious about your perspective on it. And I thought you might share some of your thoughts on the book with our audience. Cause I don't know if the audience is reading the book, yeah. you know, podcasts are free and I think the book, while I like books, I love buying books. I mean, I have shelves full of books right over there. Um, 
but I think people are more inclined to digest a podcast, mm-hmm. uh, little snippets at a time. So as a um, voracious reader and as someone who's read this book, I wanted to get your perspective. So why don't you share some of your main takeaways from the book, where you agreed, where you disagreed, and some of the things, maybe a story or two of your own perspective on how you've lived out cluelessness in your own uh, career? Good question. Um, Well, from the book, uh, I I will say it's easily digestible. Like, it's very easy to read it. There's definitely parts that you could uh, pick up, pick it up kind of in the middle sometimes and just kind of read through different pieces of it. I I actually Mm -hmm. messaged you the other day about how I was rereading one section and (laughs) I found it really interesting, uh, but I I don't want to ruin anything from from a TV for you or anything like that. Oh, no, no, no. Feel free to, there's no such thing as spoilers with this. So, um, but, um, the, um, general concept of the book, I really liked it. Uh, there was definitely areas I really found like, you know, almost to me preaching to my choir, like, Oh, you are just writing a book for me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the concept about college and you don't have to go to college. And it's something that I've talked to a lot of junior developers or people who are, you know, even at, and where we met, by the way, was at Code Day. And I would had, I right. had asked you to come to Code Day and talk. And that's one of the areas where I've, you know, seen a lot of people who are brand new and they think that they have to go to school for this or they have to go through some kind of class or certification and become a developer. And I'm like, no, no, just do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I go to schools and talk to kids about it, I tell them, just do it now. Just start your freshman in high school, spend the nights instead of playing Fortnite be a developer right, right. Like just learn a program because by the time you leave high school you could be making a decent salary at yeah. this kind of stuff yeah. there's no barrier to entry there's no barrier to entry and right. you know today i was looking through you know uh i think about 100 resumes of for one position right mm-hmm. and that was just the overflow of what we've had on the other thing right and just f- remember feeling to myself as i was just thinking about today i'm like i didn't look at the college at all you know what i mean like that's yeah. not even like a contemplation as uh, for a developer especially right. a junior level developer like yeah where you went to school doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely something I, I would say that really agree with in, inside what you wrote in there. It's, it's very um, it's very poignant, and I think especially in our industry that we're in, mm-hmm. it, you really need to have that understanding that, yeah, I mean, sometimes HR people can't get over that, right? They, right. Like that barrier to entry is still an entry that they need because they don't necessarily understand technology, mm-hmm. and they still need to get around that, on mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is very helpful, I think, to to kind of educate people on it and kind of That's teach great. them on type of stuff too. Cool. So, any uh, complaints, disagreements? Are you trying to bring up the thing I sent you that one time? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, I, I'd I'd, I'd like to go into depth into wherever yeah. you know wherever things go. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I the one thing I'd say on the you know critical feedback on it uh-huh. i guess uh, i'm not gonna i was listening to another version of the podcast and someone said like you suck or something like that from one of your videos i'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> sit here and tell you that uh more, more on the uh like some of the stories were harder to if i hadn't ever met you before they might have been harder for me to like actually connect to you like right because sometimes when you have a story about yourself or story about your own work it gets to a point of like if I can visualize you as a human being going through that situation, I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that definitely helps kind of connect the dots a little bit mm-hmm. with that personal connection. But if I was reading this and I was somebody in Illinois who picked your book up from the shelves and reading the book, I might, I might kind of get a little disconnected from it, I guess yeah. on that okay. side. 
um, when you read some of the other books, like, you know, Ryan Holiday's books and stuff like that, there's some times where he's interjecting some of his own um, right. stories into it, for sure. Yeah. Uh, he definitely, I think he got beat up a lot for his last book because he put so much of his own views on religion, I think, in his book. But um, the, Which one was his last one? His last one was Stillness is the Way. Stillness is the Way, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Is, I was thinking of the Hulk Hogan one, but... I can't oh, remember yeah. if it was the conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't yeah. I haven't finished conspiracy yet, but it was it was a good intro. But. Yeah, I haven't read Stillness is the way yet. Yeah. But uh he I mean, that's his what, fifth or sixth book by yeah, now. Yeah, I think yeah. so. The way I look at and I'm not being defensive here, just the way I look at Clueless at the work is what's called the first pancake problem. You know, the first pancake's always a little burnt. And uh I'm I'm in the research phase of the next book and I think it's gonna be really good. Uh, but I'm hoping that I learn from the mistakes that I made in the first one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't even say it's a mistake. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. it's more of a, it's more of, it's definitely more of a personal conversation with somebody Yeah. Uh, where some, like knowing you, it's easier to kind of have that connection Sure. where um, it might just be lost on some other people, you know, type of thing. But I, I think that's where like that historical example sometimes really, really can drive home the, mm-hmm. the story and kind of mm-hmm. drive home that, that it, this is a bigger thing than just one human being. This is right. like something that's helping to other people. And th- those are the kinds of things I think are valuable. I mean, the, I think one of the powerful stories in the book was definitely um, the story of like Germany and your, and your daughter right. and stuff yeah. like that. And that's one that really stuck with me, not only as being a new father, but also just from the, from the, the concept of it. Right. And that, and I think that's was a, a story that's a little deeper than, than some of the other ones that necessarily might have stuck with the work and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, everyone faces catastrophe at some point. And I know I'm a wealthy, white, male, heterosexual, you know, married with children. I'm the classic, you know, example that a lot of people don't like or want to hear any more of. And I get that, but I can't control my circumstances. Yeah. However, I do want to humanize myself in the book and life is clearly not just this easy ride for anyone. Mm -hmm. And I hope that I've conveyed struggle and embarrassment and other things in the book. Um, But yeah, that, that era really shook me up and I wanted to show that catastrophe can really throw anyone off their game but that doesn't mean they're out of the game Mm -hmm. it just it's like just take a time out be okay with yourself figure out how to get through what you're going through everyone's going to have someone with cancer in their life Mm -hmm. everyone is going to have you know like you're a new father i never would have imagined anything like this happening Mm -hmm. on to my daughter or any of my kids but these things happen and thankfully this story has and for listeners you know if you're unfamiliar with the story if you haven't read the book we went to germany for three months and my daughter fell about nine feet Um, we think she was sleepwalking she fell out of a bed a loft bed in the air Um, and she fell onto a hardwood floor and there was this terrible you know, a pool of blood. She fractured her skull, fractured her collarbone. She was in the hospital in Germany for a week. I thought it would ruin me financially. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't. I mean, the German healthcare system is just 
the opposite of the American one, but the PTSD I had was just terrible. Just constantly, because she fell from a great height, all I could think about was myself wanting to fall and take on on her pain. So um, it's a pretty... It's a pretty sad and difficult story to tell. She survived. She has no long-term effects as far as we can tell. I mean, it's hard to know if she's being a normal, like, little girl or if she's being, like, if she has mental issues, you know, from screaming and tantrums. And it's like, is this normal, you know? (laughs) But regardless, like, I want the book to share real stories. And I think um, catastrophe is just something that no one talks about in career books, you know, like... What do you do when your mom has like five surgeries in 48 hours? Yeah. Like that happened just a few months ago for me. Um, and it's not my, I'm not the one having surgery. Yeah. It happened to my mother. But like, what do you do in your career in those situations? So anyway, I wanted to cover those kinds of things. No, and you know, I, I, I always kind of tell the story of my own catastrophe when I'm talking to people as far as when, uh, when I was younger up until, oh my gosh, almost... When I, from like 16 to like 21, 22, I like barely could leave the house. Like mm. I had like anxiety, phobias, all this other stuff. Like I just couldn't do it. Right. Like, and what's that called? Agoraphobia? Agoraphobia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I was ever, I think it was more like an OCD thing that kind of drove myself to an agoraphobia type of thing. Um, but it's driven me a lot when mm. I, when I look back at like, why you know what i mean like the first thing i did the very first kind of job i took was when i started kind of getting out of the house as i said okay my brother invited me to live in flagstaff for a couple months and there's a door-to-door salesperson position open (laughs) so i took that right and i and i really loved it and i hadn't for five years didn't leave the house much i barely talked to people i was i didn't think i was even that social of a human being i thought i was like super introverted super not interested in having this conversations like I always thought oh, I'll just be in a home or whatever like that how old were you at it's, that point like 21 so like 21 to 26 oh no sorry from like six to about middle high to school 21? to like 21 I see yeah I was like I was just I had just struggled through that whole that whole point mm. um and taking that job just kind of showed me like okay I can do this you know what I mean I, I don't have to be kind of inside of a you know, I don't have to be agoraphobic. You know what I mean? I can, I can do something I didn't think I was ever going to do before, which is mm-hmm. knock on a random person's door and have a conversation with them. Which Did which, you actually do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was, uh, I spent a month doing that. It was for like... Um, Not a religious like... No, it was a conservation group here in Arizona, actually. And uh, that was, I mean, you know how people talk to like politic, political people. I mean, mm-hmm. it's still, it was still as political then, but... Mm-hmm. You know, being told to jump off cliffs and that kind of stuff. Like you had to grow a thick skin pretty quickly. And wait, uh, people, because you were knocking on their door to talk about the environment, you were told to jump off a cliff. Oh, that was the the least of the the, the niceties of people. Oh would my say to goodness, you. that's unbelievable. I, mean, I remember a guy. He wanted to have like an argument with me about nuclear power and stuff. I'm like, you know, I I'm been doing this for two weeks. I you know I don't I don't necessarily know if I can argue wow. with you on nuclear right. power or anything. Um. But it kind of like it's driven me a little bit, right? Like it's driven me to kind of seek outside my comfort zone because part of the fear is, well, what if I'll get back to that point in my mm-hmm. life at some point where I'm like, oh my gosh, can I leave my house again? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's driven me work, travel, all these things, family, all this stuff has tra- driven me because of that. Partially fear, partially the unknown of what could happen. Mm. 
Um, but partially the catastrophe of that part of my life saying, I don't want to get back to that spot, you know what I mean? Wow. Type of thing. So you're always running from that. Running at some level. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? I, I always see it in my mirror and I always see that is something that's driven me to kind of be more aggressive in some areas. Mm. You know what I mean? Like to try to push myself to, you know, to say, okay, well every year I'm going to take a trip or right. every year I'm going to do this or this or this. Well, if the listeners don't know what a traveled person you and your wife are guys have been all over the world <laughs> yeah 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 we try to we try to take a trip at least once a year and usually three or four countries a year and, and really really get out of our comfort zone and some of that mm-hmm. i mean if, if you want to feel true cluelessness i feel like you know europe's a great place to go love mm-hmm. it germany's awesome beautiful country but the second you walk into asia you are functionally illiterate right like you have no idea what right. things are saying like germany you can sound them out a little bit sometimes you can sound yeah, out yeah. what things well, are saying well my wife speaks german exactly. so that's why you know it worked out for us but we've talked about going to japan and it's like we would be completely lost you yeah completely lost but at some level that's fun right like right. like if you truly want to feel that kind of out of your element like it, you know a good example i have on that is when i went to meet my wife's family and Where? i'm being told every single thing in china mm-hmm. um and i'm being told how to do everything how to sit how to how to put my feet how to where to sit on the in the table where to sit when i'm sitting next to them like don't show your feet to them don't do this you know you've got to shave like this kind of stuff like it it's it truly kind of humbles you to say like oh wow i don't understand this you know what i mean but it's also fun at some level to say okay i don't get it but i'm going to accept it and just kind of you know just it's play play with the punches, right? Like right. I don't I don't understand it, but I don't necessarily need to understand it, right? Like right. I can just I can go with the flow, I guess you could say, on that side. So and I think that's what's great about travel. I think if you find the right experiences, you can really get into that kind of stuff, right? Like, you know, in Germany or in any country, really, if you find the right experience, it's not just go to these different sites and look at things. You can really feel that in your you know, use your travel experiences to feel a different experience, I guess you could say on that side. So as an agoraphobic young adult, let's just say you were agoraphobic. I mean, you weren't yeah. diagnosed, but... I'll use the term. <laughs> okay. So let's say you're, as an agoraphobic adult or young adult, how do you transition into a career and you run department, you run a whole department now, you mm-hmm. run multiple teams. So what has that transition been like for you and how do you stay... Um, on top of things like relationship building and making sure that people are in a good psychological and emotional state, you know, like these are things that are uncomfortable for agoraphobic people. Yeah. So can you talk a little more about that? You know, I think, I think it's one of those things where you think you're one way and then when you get into the workplace, you get into something else, you, you, you start realizing who you really are, right? Like I think that's why our education system is not great today. It's very, um, it doesn't really get you ready for the workplace. It doesn't get you ready for the person you're going to actually end up being once you start facing real challenges in life, right? Like, yeah, getting an A is a challenge and stuff like that, but building out a, you know, multi-million dollar business is a much bigger challenge and it's a much harder thing to do, which no one ever tells you how to do in high school or college or whatever like that. You just don't learn like that kind of stuff. Um, And I think part of it is just kind of, trying stuff and seeing what happens i guess like you know like i i fell into my role at this company um i was recruited pretty close out of college to to work at this company and i was doing like health insurance quoting Mm. you know and i was asked one day like hey like i know you could program a little bit 
can you help us build out some of these other pieces that for programming wise? And I said, sure, well, let's try it, right? Let's just see what happens. And we started building it out and all of a sudden we started selling this product that we had just been kind of like rifting on a little bit, I guess you could say. And um, at one point we kind of started building, building, building it and it became more of the focus of our company than what we were at before. Before we were very like, how can we have the cheapest health insurance that we can sell to customers? And then we really started moving into how can we have the best, you know, software product that we can sell to customers? And that that switch and that kind of mindset change was a mindset change on my own side, right? Like we had a team that was not me working on another software product, but they couldn't get it out the door, right? They had been very delayed on it. And one day, you know, before uh, before kind of a, a company meeting, I was told by my boss, like, well, you're it now, right? Like. <laughs> we're going to build out this side. We're not going to do this other one anymore. And, uh, and you know, I, I have a setting, I kind of sat there, said myself like, oh my gosh, that was the Calvary. <laughs> like I was hoping that we'd merge everything together. We'd all work together and we'd all get there. But it was kind of now let's get this thing done and let's put together a product that customers want. Cause we're actually responding to customers needs versus waiting too long for, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of release. Um, so I feel like from my side, it's always been like, I read a lot, like you mentioned before, I really love to read and taking a lot of what I read and how can I apply that? You know what I mean? And um, from a from management books, from history books, from all those things like that, there's always that that side learning that you do when you learn that kind of stuff. And you have to figure out how can I apply this stuff practically, right? Um, some books you read are very, you know, they kind of say the same things you need. You know, they, they're saying exactly what you want them to say, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, this speaks to me. They're fun. Or right. Some books you read, they're... Nothing makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. But so, there's some books you read and you're like, wow, like, um, I meant, was listening to other podcasts you guys, years earlier and some, you guys have mentioned Ego's Enemy and that's definitely one where you, you read and you're like, wow, like, that's true. You know what I mean? Like, how can you back away from your ego? You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. after I read that, I really started thinking like, what part of this my career has been ego-driven versus, you know, driven for by the customer, driven by what the product could be too. So... Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very humbling at times, which you, what you don't know, you know what I mean? And what you learn as you just experience it and try and different stuff. Wow. So how did you, how does the former anxiety still challenge you in terms of like putting things into practice is one thing, but to continue, like, do you feel like you've changed? You're no longer like running away from the former days of anxiety and relationship like kind of strife or do you feel like um it's still something that you that haunts you i i wouldn't say haunts i think it's something that i always keep in my back pocket mm-hmm. no like i think when you look at some people you see and like they can live a life that's pretty straightforward they, they haven't necessarily they facing everyone faces some kind of adversity in life and it's how you use that adversity to kind of propel yourself forward, right? Like, um, I, I don't have a chip on my shoulder because I was that way. It's more of the the kind of anxiety that drives you forward and says, how can I grow from this, right? And how can you, like, in, in that kind of time, and any time you have adversity, you have that kind of kind of dark feeling, I guess, like, oh, what's the point type of stuff, you know what I mean? Like, you, you it's depression, like, a, any kind of anxiety or any kind of, you know, bad time in your life. And what can you use to drive forward from that point, right? So that wasn't necessarily waste. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things that that I did when I was in that kind of time for that time I didn't 
leave the house is I worked on websites a lot. I worked on them myself and I worked on one that we took from, it was a, it was a site for um, kids learn history. And we took it from having like a couple hits every so often. It was more just for fun. And by the time I started my job and kind of like started moving away from it, we had about a hundred thousand individual submissions of different uniforms and figures and stuff. So people could learn history. And I use that to kind of learn like how to grow a community, how to work on a community and that kind of stuff, which helped me even further along as I move forward. So nothing's a waste necessarily, but it's kind of a way you can grow from it. Mm. So tell me a story of how you grew from what I've called clueless cluelessness to known cluelessness. You know, the theme of the book is really, we never, we never become intelligent <laughs> and to believe that you know something is, uh, is a problem. Uh, Robert Fripp, the guitarist, I put a quote from him at the end, but basically, uh, better to know that you are clueless, otherwise you can be dangerous. So can you talk a little, a little bit about how cluelessness has played into your own growth and how you as a leader at a company uh, see your own cluelessness and how do you handle that when you're supposed to be leading other people who believe that you know what you're doing? Yeah, that's always a good question. Uh, like, do we actually know what we, we need to be doing? And I remember uh, a little while ago, someone had on like one of our Glassdoor reviews said something like, the management doesn't know what they're doing or they're just making this up as they go. And it, and it kind of struck me as even at the time before reading your book and stuff, but it even struck me as like, well, how do you know what to do? You know what I mean? Like, how are you supposed to be? And how does this person know that you don't know? Exactly. Like, <laughs> and how, and knowing who the person was like, well, do they even know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Type of thing. And I think, I mean, I've had lots of feedback like that as far as from individuals or from like people who post on our Yelp page that say like, I'm an incompetent CTO because <laughs> of, because <laughs> of the way I responded to a question that made no sense mm -hmm. at all. And they were just kind of had a bone to pick with the business. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, I think from a lot of those areas, you have to kind of think through it as far as like, you're never going to know the answer to some stuff. You have some gut feeling, you have some ability to learn, but you never truly like know it, right? Like there's some things you play off and you're like, I've tried this before. I've done this before. I know this is how you solve this specific problem in SQL or JavaScript or something like that. But when you get to projects and stuff, like it's always a new kind of a new realm and you just have to, you have to go with it and, and realize that you're not going to succeed and you're not going to be the perfect thing at it, but it's going to probably work because you're, you know, you're not, you're not completely incompetent at it. You know, you're not making hamburgers at a payroll company type right. of thing. Yeah. Um, but it's not, um, it's not, uh, a complete loss, I guess you could say like you, you, you kind of figure it out. You kind of figure yeah. it as you go. It's funny. I was just on Glassdoor and I saw something that was like, the management team is just a bunch of inexperienced people <laughs> who got lucky. Yeah. And it's like, well, isn't that everybody? What, well, not just that, but isn't that what everyone aspires for? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I want to start a company. I want it to do really well. And then I want this bigger company to buy me out. Like so many founders have, exit strategies yeah. right and it's like you're faulting the person for taking on all the risk of starting the company not having the experience required which reminds me of a great Stephen Wright joke that 
experience is something that you get just after you needed it. (laughs) Um, And then you're faulting them for not knowing what they were doing as they grew and grew to the point where they could sell the company and make a good, you know, chunk of change. Yeah. Like, well, that's the whole point of the American, you know, capitalist dream. Right. So I think it's just kind of bitterness and jealousy when I see those sorts of comments. And frankly, I think some of the leaders at at these companies would say, yeah, that's right. I didn't know what I was doing. And we sold it for this much. Like, geez, can you imagine how uh, how much we'd sell it for if we actually knew what we were doing? (laughs) You know, the first pancake problem right there. But the people spend 10, 15 years working to get through their first business that sells and is successful enough to sell. So I just think um, those sorts of comments say so much more about the people leaving the comment than about anything else. Uh, yeah, at some level. I mean, it, it also can humble you. It, I mean, we've one of the things that we've built is like a benefits enrollment system. And at the end of the benefits enrollment system, employees could go in and rate us and tell us feedback. And it's great. We get a lot of really good feedback. We build off of that a lot and, and really build the system to be stronger. But we've got, I mean we've gotten 17, 18,000 comments on the thing. And most of them are between 4.5 and five stars. And we get some one stars and you, you can't necessarily build your life off of the 16 one stars you get out of 16,000 five stars. You know what I mean? But those one stars really make you think about it. You're like, wow, really? Do I know what I'm doing? You know what I mean? Like, like this person hates it. And then, you know, we had one person say, um, said something like, you know, this takes just an exorbitant amount of time. I just can't believe how long I've got to spend doing the system. And we looked in the system as they spent five minutes filling out their health enrollment forms. <laughs> and, you know, I look at it and I say, well, before this, you'd have to fill out these six pieces of paper. You'd right. have to write the same information six times. And you had to spend five minutes in our system clicking these five buttons. Right. You'd, you'd actually have to write it, yeah. too. It's not like... Yeah, you can't type it. You're going right. to have to write it. There's you're no going to copy-paste. Yeah, you're writing it. And if you wanted to figure out what you were being charged on it, you'd have to do all this other work to manually calculate that based off of spreadsheets and stuff. Right. So, you know, I, I see those comments as, yes, you have to, as a business accept them and kind of say what was the motive behind it but there's times where you have to say like all right this person you know even at their displeasure of having to do this process still spend five minutes you know what i mean and yeah, that's far yeah. less than what you'd have in in another sense so right it's it, funny it's i was i was just on youtube and um i saw this clip it was jamie kennedy on the joe rogan show and i don't pay a lot of attention to the joe rogan show sometimes he has really interesting guests but I, I don't even remember why I clicked this link, but he talked about like his advice is never read the comments. Yeah. <laughs> and even Jamie Kennedy, you know, he's probably an A-list actor. I wouldn't know. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's done very, very well. And he is saying, don't read the comments. Yeah. And he said, they'll crush you. You know, like somebody, you can tell jokes all day long and you have like house houses full of audience uh, laughing people, right? You have a big laughing audience. And then after the show, you get a review and it's like, well, Jamie wasn't that funny and mm-hmm. his, his outfit was stupid and he made this insensitive joke. And he's like, that gets to you. Yeah. Just don't read the comments, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I love that 
even successful people have this problem, you know, and just because they have millions of dollars or just because they are a C-level or just because they're an A-list actor or B-list, whatever it is, like, that doesn't change, like, the fact that this stuff can hurt and that they feel anxiety. You know, um, my wife was telling me Adam Driver, you know, the actor, Mm -hmm. he walked out of an interview because someone played footage of him in a movie and he does not like to watch himself (laughs) like (laughs) that's your whole job you know well his whole job is actually doing the acting not watching himself acting and all these people probably think that's ridiculous but on the other end is a human being who loves one thing about the job and how many of us are like that yeah i love looking at the code or i love writing code but i don't love like this very public bug review where yeah. uh, where my bugs are being broadcast to the whole company. Like that's not cool. Yeah. So I just think um, we need to be more human. We need to look past a lot of, a lot of like our judgments and ego is the enemy. I think ego is driving these comments and it does say more about the people leaving the comment than about what they're commenting about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, did you, I don't think you really covered this story of cluelessness to becoming clueless. Like you talked about being clueless, but do you have an example of when you realized, oh my goodness, I, I was totally clueless about this? Um, it's a good question. I mean, from a cluelessness perspective, I mean, I think that the more that I learn about something, the more I go back and look at what I did in the past and I say I was clueless at that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think as, I mean, you're someone in tech, I think the second you look back at anything that you've done in the past, you say, wow, what the heck were we even thinking on this <laughs> side, right? Like, this code's terrible, this this mm-hmm. architecture's terrible, and, and you have to go there. And I, and I think from my perspective, from like kind of like looking back at, from a, you know, what I've done so far pers- um, side, I see it kind of a kind of project management, like how I run projects and stuff like that, like not truly understanding it or when I do it, I do it what I think is the wrong way. So I always am like iterating on how I ran a project or how I run the team or something like that. And I always say like what I did in the past was wrong and I have to do it again in a different way, but I don't necessarily know if that's right. Right. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to kind of like you read online, you read in books like, okay, this is the way you have to do things. And then you say, well, that's never going to work. And you have to kind of adapt what you learn to the best way that the organization's working, right? Like, and sometimes I get worried that, you know, someone's going to come in and, and see what we've done and say, that's just terrible, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've done this the complete wrong way, but maybe they're more clueless at that than us than I am because I'm like, well, that's the adaptive way we've had to do it to make this whole thing work properly, right? right. Like it's not the ideal picture of agile. It's not the ideal picture of Kanban. It's you know, this different mixture of different things based off of how the organization actually works. And I think that the more that I see that in my own thinking and stuff, like the more I, I kind of see like, well, I was really, when I've tried things in the past, like I've tried them and I'm trying new things today with different me- methods and techniques to l- lead teams, lead projects. But I'm pretty sure I don't necessarily know if I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like it's, right. I'm, I'm kind of clueless at it, you know, at some level, but like I'm trying them, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But I know that it might not necessarily work perfectly. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's kind of a mixture of those kinds of things for me. So I think when we first met and talked about some books, you were talking about um, 
getting into behavioral economics mm-hmm. and that you were really into it. Um, and I'm reminded of that because I can see thinking fast and slow right on my bookshelf there. But I've, I've really, I love a lot of that content, but then I've read other people, you know, criticizing that content saying, well, the behavior of an individual does not characterize the behavior of a group. And really these are like isolated experiments and what are they really showing? So, you know, there's a part of me that's like, like Danny Kahneman, he's like, he's been doing this research for decades. He's not a moron, Mm -hmm. you know, he writes this incredible book and then you'll see someone like Nassim Taleb say, well, that book is useless because it's like this totally isolated thing describing one person. And it just, it makes me think like, first of all, my bias is now colored when I pick up that book. I used to think, oh my goodness, what an incredible book. But now I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? (laughs) (laughs) So in speaking of cluelessness and your interest in behavioral economics, I'm wondering if over the last couple of years, you've had any changes of beliefs or opinions or um, if you've thought about it differently, how you see it playing into your career? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I personally, like I still love reading art, art Lee and Kahneman and, um, oh, Dan Ariely. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's, he's always very insightful in mm-hmm. his books and stuff. And one of the, one of the stories in his book that I've always really enjoyed is kind of the, um, they did like a study on like candy jars or something like that of like, uh, the, the, the true cost of free, for example, of as far as, when they went out and gave people like really good chocolates and they just put them on the table and said, you can have as many as you want. It's free. People would take one or two. Mm-hmm. But the second that you gave them it for a penny, they'd, they'd be like, wow, this is a deal. I'm going to buy as many as I can. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they were almost selfish about it uh, as far as that. And um, what I've seen is like, even those are the kinds of things that I look at in like the, the real world. Right. Like I, I say, well, we have a candy jar at the front of the office. How often are we filling that candy jar at the front of the office? Actually, it turns out not very often, right? Because people take a piece when they leave the office or mm-hmm. the FedEx drive will come and they'll take a piece of candy. But, you know, the, the rational thing to do, you know, from a capitalist perspective is dump the whole thing in your bag and walk away. It's all free, right? <laughs> like this is free candy that people are putting out, but we don't do it, right? We're bound by some other kind of like... Like a moral code or something. Yeah, like yeah. moral code. And and it, it, that kind of stuff is always really fascinating to me, even... even um, I mean, specifically that, that kind of story, you know what I mean? Like I, I see that every day I see it. And I always think through that, that one section of the book, I said, wow, like, why aren't they doing that? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've or never in software. I mean, you and I personally have access to so much information about other people that could, we could easily just sell, you know, thank goodness we're moral people, but like, it's incredible when you're in technology and you collect any information about people it's like now you realize why there's only like three or four firms doing this yeah but you also realize why they make zillions of dollars yeah (laughs) but i think of the same thing like well we do what we need in general yep so anyway go ahead keep going oh no no, i was i was you know i agree with that i mean it it, that's you know what do you think is that more the trust of people having you as, as far as giving your money to do something or what, what do you, what do you well, feel like I think that? it raises questions about the importance of moral society. And, uh, I think it's important, like, you know, they talk about free markets and I'm not an economist, so this is me. Like I might as well be speaking about astrophysics yeah. or something, but you know, without regulations, the free market economists believe without regulations, then the market can truly grow. And, 
um, people like Nassim Taleb say it's an ergodic thing and you, you allow for ruin and, you know, there's, there's an order of events that lead to something without an absorbing barrier and the absorbing barrier in his mind is like regulations or bailouts. And if you don't allow things to be ruined, then you don't have an, a fully functioning economy. But on the other hand, there's the reality of, well, if this thing fails, then 30,000 people don't have work. And there's like 30,000 people without homes mm -hmm. in not too <laughs> distant a future. And so, you know, I don't really know. I, I, but I do believe that it's important, especially as we grow more technological and as things of value become intangible and and can be carried on like a storage disk that's you know smaller than a quarter like your whole life's data can be carried on like a one terabyte you yeah. know <laughs> sd card or yeah. something like that we do have this moral obligation to each other for the greater good of humanity yeah to uh do what is necessary and what is right not what is available so i, I don't know that's kind of my thought we need to we need to have a moral society not necessarily legislated according to one spiritual belief or whatever but i don't know not sure where i'm going with this <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about the the bowl of candy and the economy <laughs> the bullet in the economy i think it uh i think it shows that people act in the interest of the community at a lot of times and not necessarily purely in the interest of the economy and i think if you read some of the behavioral economic books on the true cost of free and like why people do what they do when they have free stuff like mm -hmm. um you know the, the there's another great story in there about gifts and how like you wouldn't you know you wouldn't go to your mom's house and say okay mom how much for you right. know, how much for thanksgiving dinner how much do i here's 30 bucks <laughs> yeah. for thanksgiving dinner i hope that like, covers everything yeah that that wouldn't necessarily play well in any in, in any right. culture in the world right so it's uh you know it, there there's this unspoken moral code i think well not even unspoken i mean some of it's written down some of it's you know and i don't know where where we, we kind of show it mm -hmm. um but we have that still, and that still drives a lot of like, well, why don't employees steal? Why don't yeah. they do this kind of stuff? Like, part of it is, could they, you know, could they get away with it? Well, maybe they could get away with it, but why don't they? You yeah. know what I mean? Why don't yeah. people do more bad stuff? Right. And, um, I think that sometimes supersedes the economy. Yeah. Uh, at some level, I mean, I'm yeah. not an economist either, but I, I feel like sometimes it does, but I can't, you know, I feel like that's where the behavioral economic stuff comes from, and mm -hmm. it really impacts me as far as that extra level of that extra level of understanding like you know supply and demand but there's something further beyond that yeah that drives us you right. know what i mean it drives us to do what we do and yeah. you know, create and do this kind of stuff that is beyond just i can get more money for it well i do like what taleb says uh in my home i'm a communist in my neighborhood <laughs> i'm a socialist in my you know broader community i'm a libertarian in my state i'm like a moderate yeah and then in my nation i'm a conservative you know like the broader you look the more conservative uh you should behave i really do appreciate that because um you know i can be politically right or left it doesn't matter what does matter is how i act <laughs> yeah and how i can preserve the interests of of as many people as possible so um that's definitely 
affected the way that I think about politics. Just that, that statement alone. Yeah. And in my, the most recent podcast episode that I released, which will probably be two or three prior to this one when it comes out, I talked to a guy named Zuby who says we need to train our audiences to pay. Mm-hmm. And people don't value what is free. If you give a CD to someone of your music, they'll use it as a coaster or they'll throw it away. Yeah. But if you pay, make them pay $10 for it, they're not going to use it as a coaster yeah. or throw it away. You know, it'd be like using a $10 bill as a coaster. Like yeah. you just, you don't do that. You value it differently. So I think as much as I've had to struggle with this book and the idea of giving it away for free, which is my natural inclination. Yeah especially in an open source technology community, I've had to realize not only is giving it away, devaluing the book, but I literally lose $8 every copy that I give away because I'm buying them to give away. (laughs) That one, your time you spent too. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, And the time, not just the lifetime of work leading to the book, but all the hours I actually spent on the book. So, um, yeah, actually getting copies and giving them away is not in my best interest, yeah. even though I feel like I'd rather just give the information away. Yeah. So it makes me realize from a behavioral standpoint that I'm clueless about this. You know, like, sure, giving away things is great, but how much in debt do you want to go to this thing that you made? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do I want to lose $300, $500, $1,000, you know, like by giving this thing away? I mean, what are you looking for? You know what I mean? Like, um, I guess that's a good question for you. Like when you wrote the book, what's the, you know, what's your intention? Is it to get, is it to get the information in people's hands? What, what was your intention when you wrote it? You know, you're sitting in a studio that I helped build and it is full of instruments and recording devices because I just love to create. And on the one hand, I wrote the book because I just love to create things. And I thought, well, I seem to know enough about these things or at least be able to say enough about them that I could release a book. So sure, let's give it a shot. On the other hand, I have hired dozens and dozens and dozens of people and worked with thousands of people and found that so many of us just don't have a way of articulating a story for our careers. So I want to help people. I hope that they buy the book and that it helps them, you know, but you can't, even if they buy the book, that's not even a promise that they'll read it yeah, read it or even use it. So it's been an interesting dilemma that I'm working through every day ever since. Yeah. And in the last month, really working through it Yeah, and trying to convince myself that this is something worth buying, that it is good enough to buy. And all of the feedback that I've gotten has been overwhelmingly positive but it makes me feel like no one's telling me the truth. Yeah. But maybe they are. Maybe the book is good. Yeah. Maybe it is worth buying. Well, you know, I, I, I'll tell you the, one of the, <laughs> one of the things that uh, made me feel clueless after reading your book 
was, uh, you know, you asked like, hey, could you put together an Amazon review, right? And I said, yeah, sure. And so I sat down to write the review. I'm like, holy crap, like, how do I review this thing? Right. How do I, how do I think critically about this book? And, and it really, it, it sent me down this path, right? It sent me down this path of saying, am I really reading these books properly? <laughs> you know what I mean? Am, am I actually reading a book properly, right? right. Because no one ever really talks about how do you read a book? You know what I mean? How do you really like digest that book and really think through that book critically and uh, the most effective way? And, and unfortunately with your book, when I sat down to read, uh, write the review, I'm like, what, you know, what am I going to write about this? You know, yeah. how am I going to, how am I going to, you know, write this in a way for a review or anything like that? And uh, it's really sent me down this path for the last two or three months of like, okay, what, how do I read books? You know, how do I truly read a book? You <laughs> That's know what so I mean? interesting. Um, and it, you know, like I, the last couple of months I've tried to like say, okay, after every paragraph, I'm going to really think through what that paragraph was saying. And then after every chapter, I'm going to think through all the paragraphs of all the mm-hmm. summaries of the paragraphs I've done. And, mm-hmm. and it's just different, you know what I mean? And it, it, is. It, and it really makes you th- like, if you really th- spend the time, not just to say, well, I'm going to pound out these five books this weekend, but to really understand them it, it mm-hmm. really gives you a different understanding of the book and makes you think through what the author was saying too it's yeah. a different it's a different experience but that's one of the things that honestly like you know out of everything i've kind of gathered from it like that was the one thing i'm like holy crap am i reading correctly <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know, no one's ever taught me how to do this properly yeah you know, yeah type of thing. Like, well this book team topologies that i have over here on my desk has really challenged me in that way too because it's a very deep book. It's really good. I've underlined the heck out of this book. And I started writing a review and I was like, there's stuff I like about this book and there's stuff I don't like about this book. But now that I've written a book, do I want to actually say out loud the things that I don't like? Yeah. You know, because these people have gone through I, at least as much as I have. I mean, probably much more. I wrote my book and a few weeks i'm sure they've been writing this thing for years i mean there's literally 15 pages of like bibliography and tiny text yeah <laughs> so i'm like holy cow you know uh who has the right to criticize this book but then it's like no we all do yeah we all do and just because i criticize it doesn't mean anything about those people just like if someone criticized my book it doesn't mean anything about me yeah so it's it has been interesting for me because this book has really changed my view of how teams should be run yeah. in software in good ways and in ways that I'm not so sure about. But there are things in the book that clearly could be better. Like from the, the structure of the book or from no, the... No, the writing of the, the book. Writing, okay. You know, like it's just, it, it's over complex at yeah. times. So that's one criticism. And I think about myself writing this if I were to have written that book, how would I have done it differently? And it's like, uh, you know, we're all just, we're all just like those glass door reviews, just like the Yelp reviews. We're all just figuring it out <laughs> yep. every stinking day, yep. every just chapter. figuring it out. And I'd ga- I doubt, I mean, if you told me you thought about every paragraph I wrote after each paragraph, I would be like, you are the craziest person <laughs> I've ever met. I would never intend on anyone reading. I mean, I literally just brain dumped and then I stopped myself because I could have I kept going on and on and on and this book is long enough. So the idea that you were you would th- consider each paragraph for me I was just like 
what do I have to say about this? I don't like the paragraph structure. You're gonna is, kick me out of your home. Is what you're gonna yeah. do? <laughs> the <laughs> but, paragraph but it, structure is almost not like the least important thing when I think about that book. But it's more. It's more of the you know. It's more of the concept of like you know. What do we gather from when we read? Oh, right? totally. You know I mean? Oh, like, and and the other thing is everyone reads differently. Everyone picks it up and has a different interpretation. So another reason I love Robert Fripp's take on things is because uh, he talks about these basement people, and basement people are people with their heads where the sun doesn't shine, and they're bumping into each other in the basement, yeah. asking how the weather is, <laughs> and then. Um, you know, the people in the basement think the world is just like them, only more so. And I think, well, if I read this book, here's what I would be thinking. But that is the most stupid, idiotic assumption. That's me saying, well, other people are going to be like me, only more so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to read it the way that I would read it, only more so. Yeah. When the reality is, uh, really, hundreds of people have read this book and a lot of people have told me they've read it outside of a review or, or a conversation in a podcast or whatever. And they tell me things that I never would have expected. So it's been a really interesting journey for me. Yeah. Yeah. So any, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap or anything you want to share with the audience? No, uh, I, I would say that, you know, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to actually write it. I was thinking, uh, like, I think last time we talked, I was talking how like Talab to me was very, very dense. And like, you've, you've, you've taken a lot of his, the eye rolling moments out of his books as far as like, <laughs> do we have to sit here and spend another 15 pages on the elites of Harvard and stuff like that? <laughs> so maybe if you continue to do that, just take his books, take out all the elitist kind of fighting arguments. Maybe that will continue to make his stuff more digestible. You know what I mean? What's funny is uh, there's that website Blinkist, I think it is, where they will um, basically summarize every book in 15 minutes or yeah. less. And he like he went on a scathing tirade saying, if a book can be explained in less than 15 minutes, it shouldn't be a book. <laughs> and uh, I partially agree with him. And his book is just so his books are so full, so full of ideas, so full of wisdom and everything. But uh, when like anybody else, you read it and you take away only certain things. So all I can do is share the things that really impacted me. And I cannot pretend to understand it the way that he understands yeah. it. I mean, the guy really is a genius and anyone at that level, you know, you can only just hope that you can take away what or something. Yeah. And I think we're better from learning from any genius than criticizing them. <laughs> well, at least hopefully next book, you're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Harvard elites and stuff. So. No, no. I'll tell you after the podcast what the, the next book is <laughs> about. Right. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. And uh, that was Alex Kramer from the company Tag based in Arizona. And uh, looking forward to hearing you guys in the next one. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clueless at the Work podcast. You can pick up a copy of the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at cluelessatthework.com, where you'll also find book excerpts, podcast transcriptions, and more related content. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and check out our previous episodes as we walk through the book content together.